Daniel chapter 3. We have been in the book of Daniel since the new year, or since September, I should say, our year here at the church. And looking forward to Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 this morning. If you're new to us, everything we do here at Grace is founded on, rooted in the Word of God. It's not our opinion. It's not our preferences. It is what God says in His Word. So we want you to have a copy of the Bible open in front of you. If you came this morning and don't have a copy of God's Word, we want to provide one for you. So if you look under the chairs in front of you, there should be a copy of God's Word there for you. And in that version of the Bible, it's on page 692, page 692, Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. What we want to talk about this morning is this reality or this insidious sin of conformity. There's a lot of pressure to conform, to just go along with the majority or the very vocal oftentimes very angry, minority. Go along with what culture, what society, what generally speaking people are saying, just conform. Get in line. But the interesting thing is, biblically speaking, conformity and nonconformity are not defined as we would typically define them in our culture. Conformity defined in our culture, generally speaking, means to look like, to go along with the prevailing idea, what culture generally has accepted as good and right and true. And so you see companies do this all the time. Regardless of whether they actually believe in anything, they want to sell their product, and so they conform. Nonconformity in our culture means a number of things, but one of the things it means is someone who is a rebel. They're against rules and structure of any kind. They're not up for the majority. They're not up for how society views things. They're their own person. What's interesting about biblical conformity and nonconformity is, biblical conformity is, to submit to and to look like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to be made and remade in the image of Christ, to look like him. It is not conformity to the prevailing ideas of the culture, but it is conformity to Christ, to God and to his word. Non-conformity then is not rebellion, because rebellion is actually conformity, if I can put it that way. But nonconformity, biblically speaking, is to not go along with what culture says is right and good and true and pure, but to go along with what God says is right and good and pure and true. But there's a lot of pressure to just go along with culture and society. It's easier that way, isn't it? There's no risk of being canceled. There's no risk of having negative comments on our social media feed. There's no awkward conversations at work. It's just easier to go along, to even be silent, to just sort of not get involved, to not say anything. 
And that's really what we have in our passage this morning. And I'm grateful that as we, the Holy Spirit helped us put together the sermon schedule, we didn't just deal with chapter 3 in one big chunk because we could have. But I think it's appropriate for us to pause and just look at the first seven verses of chapter 3. We know the story. We want to spend some good time this morning explaining what is going on here and why this is such a problem and something that we are facing today in 2023. So let's look then at Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is the word of God. So what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through this passage twice and still end on time. But the, the goal here is to look at the pool of conformity and how strong it seems to be. And and, and the author here is very deliberate, as all authors of Scripture are. There's repetition, almost to the point of, to our ears, as we read this to go, really, do we need all of this? We got it the first time. But there's a reason why the author is doing this. It's twofold. In the first place, it is to give us the sense of the overwhelming pull of conformity. It's to give us a sense of the broadness and the bigness and the pomp and the ceremony and the circumstance of this occasion. This is not a small thing to resist. It's a difficult thing to resist, as we're going to see. But there's something then underneath that, and there's a reason why the author writes as he does. And we're going to discover that, hopefully, as well this morning. So let's look in the first place then at this pull of conformity. All of us have felt this. We have felt this as young children on the playground. We have felt this when we were at somebody's birthday party or sleepovers or whatever it was, a group of our friends. We have felt this as adults. We feel this every day. We feel this in our small culture. We feel this in the broader culture. We get this, I think. We understand the pull of conformity. In the first place, you see the authority behind the conformity. Six times in this passage, Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as King Nebuchadnezzar, capital K. 
We're only three chapters in, but Nebuchadnezzar has been described for us numerous times, and the first time the word king is used as a descriptor is in Daniel 2.46, which we looked at last week. But in this passage, six times in seven verses, it is driven home to us that Nebuchadnezzar is king. There is an authority here that belongs to or that is behind conformity. It's not a light thing. As we're going to see, there's also penalties to not conform. But our authorities want us to get in line with the prevailing thoughts that they have. And they can do certain things to us if we don't. And so it is difficult. This is not an easy thing. It's flippant to just simply say, well, just don't conform, follow God. Yes, we should. But we ought to feel the weight in this passage of this pull of, of conformity because of the authority that is behind conformity. This is King Nebuchadnezzar, who has the ability to end people's lives. He's already shown us that earlier on in the book. He is a supreme authority in his own mind. He's the ultimate authority, humanly speaking, and it is heavy. We are bombarded on all sides by different types of authorities, medical authorities, scientific authorities, academic authorities, political authorities. And there is this pull then to conform. Notice the splendor of conformity. It looks good. It looks majestic. It looks amazing. Nebuchadnezzar makes an image of gold. Given the size, 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide, probably not solid gold, although perhaps he had the ability to do that, but probably gold-plated. And one of the indications that it was gold-plated is that there was a smelting furnace nearby. It's the furnace that's referred to in verse 6 as the penalty for not bowing down to this image. Whether it was solid gold or gold-plated, it's, it's an impressive structure, 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. Probably there is a base involved because those dimensions would make a very skinny human being if that's what this image even was. It doesn't say it was an image of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it, it, it could have been to Marduk or one of his gods, but whatever this image was, it was a very impressive image to be sure. And notice the, the music. Some of the words in Hebrew even give the indication of a symphony, an orchestra. It's very ornate. It's very big. Who's gathered here? People from all tribes, nations, and languages. Bear in mind, Nebuchadnezzar has conquered most of the known world. There's representatives from all different cultures and ethnicities. Add to that that there's seven types of authorities that are mentioned, and then just sort of this blanket statement on the other officials of the provinces. A lot of high-ranking individuals that are here. This is a big deal. This is a fairly large production. And sometimes we also get pulled into that, do we not? We see the splendor of conformity. Our, our world can make things look good. Satan is called an angel of light. He can certainly present to us things that look attractive. Notice in the third place the setting of conformity. Now this cannot be missed. This passage fairly screams this out. Where does Nebuchadnezzar set up this image? He sets it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Does this recall to your mind another structure that was started to be constructed in Babylon? Your mind has to go to Genesis chapter 11, does it not? 
it's almost a recreation of the Tower of Babel. What do the nations of the world say? We will be stronger together. Let us all come together and glorify ourselves. What did God said? He said it to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and scatter. Replenish the earth. Go. Fill the earth. What does he say to Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives after they get off the ark? After he has cleansed the earth of the stain of sin to a certain degree. What does he say? Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Go. And what do the people say in Babylon? Stay. Build a structure that shows our glory. So what does God do? He scatters the peoples across the globe. What is Nebuchadnezzar trying to recreate here in, in miniature perhaps? Let's bring everything back together. Whose glory is on display here? It's not God's. It's Nebuchadnezzar's. It's human glory and majesty. As we've already alluded to, notice the penalty of nonconformity in verse 6. We want everybody, when you hear the music, to bow down to this image. And peer pressure and the pomp and the circumstance and the authority of King Nebuchadnezzar and all of his different levels of authority ought to be enough, but just in case you didn't get the message, if you don't bow down, you will be put into this smelting furnace, this fiery furnace. Some commentators believe this could get up to, uh, in excess, I guess, of 1,000 degrees, very, very hot, used for melting metals. It's so hot that later on, as we know in chapter 3, as the individuals go to toss in Daniel's three friends, they are consumed by the heat and the smoke and die before they can even reach the fiery furnace itself as they're tossing these three guys in. It's right there in the background. And do we not face similar realities in our day? Perhaps not fiery furnace, but loss of employment, Loss of status in our culture around us, loss of a voice, persecution, for not looking like what our society wants us to look like, for not conforming on the outside. There's a penalty here, there's a cost for not conforming. And it's grave, it's deadly. And then on top of all of that, what happens in verse 7? The majority conforms. It says, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound, all the peoples, nations and languages, fell down and worshipped. This is a new God, new thing we got going on, Nebuchadnezzar? Great. And that is the insidious nature of conformity because internally, these individuals, their politics didn't need to change. Their actual worship didn't need to change. Their own private thoughts didn't need to change. Who they were on the inside didn't necessarily need to change. What was, what was the only thing asked is just to outwardly appear as if you are in line with this new image. Outwardly conform. Look like what we want you to look like. Whatever's going on inside your head, whatever's going on inside your heart, that's inconsequential, but just fall in line. Look like what everybody else is looking like. 
look like a worshiper of this new image. And this is the same pull of conformity that we feel in our day. So, in the second place then this morning, let's pull back the curtain on conformity. What's really going on here? It's amazing as you look at this text and do a deeper dive into it. Notice in the first place the insecurity behind conformity. Why is it that the author adds a title to Nebuchadnezzar, not for the first time, but repeatedly in this text that he has not opened with. You would expect some continuity. If King Nebuchadnezzar is how he's referred, you would expect to have that started in chapter one. It does not. It does not appear until 246. And then the second through seventh time that it appears in the text is all right here in these first seven verses. King Nebuchadnezzar. In case you missed it, King Nebuchadnezzar. It is a reality that those that feel the need to display their resume frequently are the same individuals that struggle from insecurity. Why is there a necessity to splash your credentials? Why is there a necessity to broadcast your title? If you believed that you had this authority rightfully, and that how you were leading the people that you were called to lead rightly, why the need to continually splash out there that you are king? It just screams insecurity. Fairly screams it off the page. If worshiping this structure, this image, <coughs> is correct, why the penalty? Why the fiery furnace? Truth is true. Reality is reality. It does not require an increase in volume, and it does not require the introduction of penalties. If you believe that what you believe is true, you don't need to scream it. You don't need to scream at people that don't believe it. You don't need to take excessive measures. If it's true, it's true. But if it's not true, <laughs> If you're insecure about whether or not it's true, then you take extra measures. You have to write prolifically and scream loudly and remind people of your credentials and your resume and introduce penalties for nonconformity. This whole passage screams insecurity. Notice the behind the scenes of conformity. In most of the places in this text where it says King Nebuchadnezzar, what follows is that he, he is the one that set this image up. And it starts right out of the gate, third word in, Daniel 3, 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made. If anybody had stepped back and just thought about this from a logical, practical standpoint, who made this image? Nebuchadnezzar made it. And six times in the passage it says, and Nebuchadnezzar set this up. This is of human origin. He's the one that set it up. Now let me pose to you a question. Who is greater? The individual who makes something or the thing that has been made? In our questions for further reflection, we're going to go to Isaiah 44. The foolishness 
of idolatry. Isaiah says, how is it that you take wood and you chop it, some of it you throw in the fire and burn it, and some of it you plate it with gold and worship it? How how does this make any sense? How can we bow down and worship this as great and greater, knowing its origin and its source? Nebuchadnezzar, if you want to just come out and say, look, just worship me, great, I can take that or leave that. But this image you're saying, worship this, obviously based on the dream that he had in chapter 2, although his interpretation of the dream is somewhat suspect since he was only the head of gold and the image that he makes is entirely of gold. He's attempting to change the interpretation. God told him what? Those two fateful words. Remember we said that two sermons ago? After you. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I don't like that after me. I I want me to keep going. So let's set up this image. Let's worship this. But the thing that is made is always lesser than the thing that has made it, which is the same principle that relates to us, (laughs) since we are made by God. But the passage screams this, if you would step back and look at it. Of course, in the third place, the setting of conformity, our minds go to Genesis chapter 11, but what does it say in verse 9? Who's actually in control all the way back in Genesis 9? Genesis 11, verse 9. God comes down to see what, it, what people are up to. and What does God do? God scatters the nations. This scene with all of the music, with all of the pomp and circumstance, with all of the seeming splendor and majesty, if any Jew who knew their scriptures looked at this, they would have to say, false. These individuals are all gathered here from every language and people and nation. And all of these directors, all of these officials are gathered here to worship essentially themselves. And what happened the last time that happened? God showed himself mighty. It rings false. There's not a reality here. This isn't truth. For all of what it looks like, It's not true. But notice in the fourth place this morning the insidiousness of conformity. (coughs) Everybody, now we know as we get further in the passage, except for three, but the majority, the vast majority, they all bow down. Now what needs to change in order to conform? The only thing that needs to change is outward appearance. Don't have to change what you think. Don't have to change what you believe. Don't have to change what you love. Don't even have to change what you worship. But you do have to change what you look like. And that's why this is so problematic. Because the lie is, Well, you're not really worshiping this false God. You're not really worshiping what Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Inside, right, you're not not really believing this is true. You see through this, right? But outwardly, just don't rock the boat. 
Don't make waves. Don't hurt anybody's feelings. Just, just bow down. Don't have to change anything inside. And that's why this is so problematic. Because to everyone around, what does it look like? It looks like we are falling in line with lies, with deception, with falsehood, just like everyone else. It would have been easy for Daniel's three friends to just go along with the crowd. You don't have to change what you actually believe. You don't have to change what you think inside. You don't have to change what you love. But just outwardly change what you look like. The lie is that you can do that without changing who you are inside. And the reality is that you can't. If you change the outside in the sense of what you look like, what you conform to, you are starting on the path of changing what you are inside. But even if you don't, what happens to those around you and what happens to the next generation? What do they see? It's not always what they hear. What do they see? They see that you look like this. You look like falsehood. You look like deception and lies. You don't look like you follow the truth. You don't look like you believe what you say you believe. You don't look like you stand for who you say you stand for. You don't look like you love who you say you love. And so what is their conclusion, the next generation? That there is no reality to this. This can't be true. What I see must then be true, even if the individuals that are conforming are telling me something different. There's a price to be paid for conformity, and that price is our hearts and souls, and the hearts and souls of the next generation. And so we know the story, or we think we do, but we wanted to take a pause here and just see what God's Word has to say about this reality of conformity and nonconformity. Before we close with our response, as we apply this, a word. Do not hear this morning that nonconformity means rebellion. I hope I was clear off the top, but let me circle back to that just in case. There are individuals who want to stand for truth, who want to stand up for truth, who want to not just be silent in the face of lies and falsehood and harm and destruction and deception, want to speak out for truth, but they do it in a way that is not in the spirit of Christ, but is unfortunately in the spirit of one of the definitions our world has of nonconformity, of rebellion that really the attention is not on God, but the attention is on them. One of the main things that we take away from Daniel certainly is standing firm in the sovereignty of God, but it's also important how we stand firm in the sovereignty of God. Daniel 1 taught us that. Daniel does not pick it outside of the hanging gardens of Babylon. Daniel does not start a petition 
Daniel does not start a written campaign. Daniel does not uh, host a protest. Daniel does not speak harshly. Daniel does not whine and complain. Daniel is not arrogant. Daniel simply goes to the lower magistrate and says, hey, could we try something different? Then he goes to a lesser magistrate than that who says, okay, 10 days and we'll do it. And he works something out by God's glory and by God's grace. Chapter 2, Daniel does not start a campaign, Nebuchadnezzar unfair to enchanters and Chaldeans. He does not start a social media blitz. He does not respond in anger and wrath. He does not respond harshly. He does not put the attention on himself. What does he simply do? He goes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, can you give us more time to pray and ask God to give you the response that you're looking for? And then in chapter 3, and we'll get into this more next Sunday, the response of Daniel's three friends. Again, they don't use their social media platforms to speak harshly and aggressively and arrogantly against Nebuchadnezzar. Even when they are brought before him face to face, they do not respond in a way that elevates themselves. They simply don't bow because who they are on the inside also is reflected on how they behave on the outside. There's integrity. It's the same all the way through. And then when those that are malicious against them point them out quite delightfully and send them to Nebuchadnezzar, their response to him is not arrogant. It's not loud and proud. It's not harsh and mean and unkind. It's simple to say, we can't do this. With all due respect, King Nebuchadnezzar, we worship someone greater than you and someone greater than this image. If you throw us in the fiery furnace and we perish, praise be to God because then we'll be with him. And if he saves us, also praise be to God. But whatever happens, we simply can't bow down. Do not create an unbiblical definition of conformity or nonconformity in your mind as we've gone through this sermon and go out from here this morning to say, oh, so I'm not supposed to conform to the way that our society is saying things. So what that means is I need to be bold and brash and arrogant and in people's faces, argue, yell, scream. I need to use unbiblical methods to stand for biblical truth, which again, ironically, is against the definition of what it means to be nonconformist, right? To conform to the image of God. How can we say we're conforming to the image of God in what we believe if we're not conforming to the image of God in how we behave? We're divided. And the whole reality of conforming to Christ is that we are united. <laughs> that both who we are and what we say and do are the same all the way through. So the pull of conformity is strong. Our culture wants us to just stop speaking the truth, stop living the truth. It makes me feel better if you just go along with what I want you to go along with. Just support me, affirm me. And we can't do that. We see through the lies, or we should by the truth of God. We see through the deception. But we cannot then turn that into a lack of love whereby we begin to hate the individuals 
who are hating us. That's not how this is supposed to work. Because, as Isaiah also says in Isaiah chapter 44, why are they worshiping themselves? Why are they worshiping their idols? Why are they doing these things? Because they can't do anything else. It's who they are by their nature. And by the way, although I risk much repetition, that's also you and me, apart from the grace of God. You're not here this morning because you're smarter than people that aren't. And you're not here this morning, hopefully, because you think you're more morally upright than people that aren't here. But you ought to understand that the only reason you are here and want to be here and want to hear God's word and want to be with God's people is because of God's grace, which ought to engender in you a heap ton of humility. We are at war, but our enemy is not our fellow human beings. Our enemy is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Mainly the flesh. <laughs> but Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. They're not tangible and physical. They're spiritual. The reason why your family member does not believe the truth, the reason why your neighbor posts the things that they do on Facebook and social media, the reason why people at work take a very different approach and perspective to life than you do is not because they're less intelligent than you or they're less moral than you. It is because they are still acting out their nature. And the only reason, the only reason you know the truth, love the truth, and walk in the truth is by God's grace and his mercy. Because only Jesus Christ can change you from the inside out and make your inside and outside match to make you a whole person in him. We all need Jesus. So don't walk out of here starting a fresh campaign against an ideology that you despise. But do walk out of here praying for those that you know that hold it that God would open their eyes to the same truth that he needed to open your eyes to. Which leads us to our response this morning. Are we intentionally being transformed by the gospel every day? What your neighbors and family members and those around you need is not for you, out of even a heart of love and care and concern, to affirm them in their sin and in their deception and their falsehood and lies. What your neighbors and your coworkers and those around you who do not yet worship God need to see is someone who does consistently and faithfully with all humility and grace. And the tendency, the pull is for us to say, look, I just don't want any trouble. I hate conflict. I, I can just go along with this, doesn't change who I am, doesn't change what I believe, doesn't change what I love, doesn't change what I worship. But the reality is, it does. It will, and it will for those that are watching. So we are called to be transformed by the gospel every day, 
which does not just mean what we believe, but also how we behave. Let's look to the Lord in prayer this morning. (coughs) Father, thank you for this passage. And thank you for the realities contained therein. That on the surface, everything looks powerful, everything looks overwhelming, everything looks correct, everything looks right and true, everything looks like something that we should also look like. And yet, Father, only by your mercy and grace do you enable Daniel's three friends and us to see through these things, to peel back the curtain, to see the insecurity, to see the behind the scenes, to see the setting and the reality of it, to see the insidiousness of conformity. So, Father, on the one hand, help us then to rejoice in that, to thank you for that, to be grateful for that, that we are whole, we are not divided, that our inside and our outside match, that we are not fragmented as so much and so many in our culture are. But, Father, we didn't do that. We didn't come up with that on our own. We didn't muscle our way into that. It is only by your grace and by your mercy. Give us great humility. Give us gratitude. And help us then to truly be salt and light in the world around us. To stand, not back down, but to do it in a way that is consistent with the message that we are standing on. That we do not glorify ourselves in any way but we want to bring all glory and honor to you. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.